We think women need to talk more openly about money because money really matters. It shouldn't be embarrassing or confusing. Join the conversation. We'll be discussing a whole range of topics which will help you get comfortable with your finances. Money Matters, brought to you by AJ Bell. Hello, Money Matters podcasters. I'm Danny Hewson and Laura Souter and I will be laying out all the important bits you need to know about those big childcare promises in the latest UK budget. Hi there. Yeah, my ears really pricked up when I heard about the Chancellor's plans, which were, of course, leaked beforehand. But unfortunately, the small print has a little bit of a sting in the tail for it. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, Also on today's pod, no sting in the tail for us because Laura has been chatting to Claire Barrett, who has taken on the role of the nation's financial agony aunt in her Money Clinic podcast. Yep, she's the consumer editor at the Financial Times and she talks about all the kind of questions she's being asked at the moment during the current cost of living crisis, but also about her new book, which is called What They Don't Teach You About Money, Seven Habits to Unlock Financial Independence. Very catchy title, full of brilliant tips to help you get more involved with your finances. And you'll be glad to know we got a couple of free copies to give away. So keep listening right to the end of this podcast to find out more. And also on this podcast, we'll be asking one of your financial questions that you've sent in. And as always, we'll be hearing another financial confession, which is, I think, the quirkiest one that we have had this week. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, and I haven't heard that, so I'm really looking forward to it. We've got another packed pod coming your way, as you know, if you've listened to the Money Matters podcast before or you've seen any of our articles or our big research report that kicked the whole campaign off. We are passionate about helping women be more financially healthy. And it's well known that one of the big hurdles facing attempts to narrow the gender pay gap, the gender investment gap, is the fact that when we have kids, many of us take time out of the workplace. Some of us go back to work part-time, some don't want to go back to work for a while or at all, and some of us find that we can't go back to work because the cost of childcare is so expensive. I remember when I went back to work, and I did go part-time initially, that first childcare bill, it was just It was the size of the mortgage, Laura, and I just couldn't quite believe how expensive it was. And you're there right now because you've got a young child. How did you feel when you got that first bill? I think I was slightly braced for it because all of my friends have extortionately high childcare bills. Mine is slightly lower than some, so that makes me feel in some weird way that I'm giving a bargain, even though I'm shelling out hundreds and hundreds of pounds a month for childcare. Um, I'm trying to focus on how rich I'll be once she's in school and I don't have to pay these childcare costs, but they are a huge cost. And I know um, friends of mine have dropped out of the workplace because it just doesn't make financial sense for them to go to work because they wouldn't be earning enough to cover those childcare costs. So this was the big debate going up to the budget. And finally, we had a really big announcement on childcare in the budget. So the headline of it is that everyone will get 30 free hours of childcare once their child is nine months or older. So currently, um, we get it for three and four-year-olds. So you get it for the term after your child turns three. Um, The government is extending that to recognise the fact that lots of parents don't want to just put their children into nursery from the age of three onwards. They actually want to put them in from when they go back to work, whether that's when they're nine months or 12 months or 18 months old. Um, And 
what the Chancellor said at the time was this is really intended to pick up where maternity and paternity pay leaves off. So you get statutory maternity leave, and then that should then roll into these free childcare hours. Now, there's obviously a lot of devil in the detail, which we will be going through. That headline isn't quite as great as it initially sounds. <laughs> no, and there have been loads of people kicking off about this, particularly, you know, if they've got nine, ten month olds now, maybe they've got two kids. I had two kids under two that I was paying childcare for for a number of years. And yeah, the when they start school and the childcare bill comes down a bit, Oh, the relief that you get. But yes, the devil is in the detail and this is the detail. So unfortunately, it's not going to come in straight away. In fact, it's going to be September 2025 before all eligible under fives will get that 30 hours free. It's going to be staggered. So from April 2024, working parents of two-year-olds will get 15 hours of free care. And then from September 2024, children of nine months and older will get the 15 hours free childcare. Now, that's not great if, I mean, you're in that situation, Laura, aren't you? Because you potentially could be claiming quite a bit of free childcare almost immediately, but you're not going to be able to. No, so my daughter's two and a half now. She'll become eligible for the free hours from January next year. So it means she'll be eligible for her three-year-old hours before she'll be eligible for the new scheme. I think the frustration was that when this was leaked ahead of the budget, it made it seem like it was something that could come in immediately and help people out. And so people feel like they were kind of promised something. And then actually, we've got this staggered rollout. And the people that are going to benefit the most from this are people who have haven't even conceived their children yet. So it's quite frustrating for parents of kind of young children or toddlers today, or even people pregnant with children at the moment. Um, a lot of them will miss out on that full three hours. The government's logic for this is that it needs time for the sector to build up the supply to meet that expected new demand. So the government's plan is that this um, funding of childcare hours means that more people can go back into work, which means more children will be in nurseries. Now, at the moment, we know that nurseries are really struggling. Only 50% of local authority areas say that there's sufficient supply to meet current demand at all age groups. Um, so what that means is we really need to build up the number of places at nurseries before this funding comes in. So there is logic behind why it's being staggered in but frustrating for parents of young people today. Yeah, and there are also big concerns from providers about exactly how much they're going to get paid for these free hours because there's sort of been a disconnect between the amount it costs nurseries and the amount that the government has been um, paying nurseries to provide the free childcare. So in a lot of places, nurseries are having to sort of boost up costs for other things in order to bridge that gap. Now, the government has said that it is going to substantially, inverted commas, raise the hourly rate that it pays to deliver those free hours. But of course, you know, within those inverted commas, the question is, how much are they going to pay? And we do know that, um, you know, 
the amount that providers get for their free hours currently has actually been cut by 13% in real terms since the peak in 2017. That's according to figures from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. So there are real issues here for the sector. And as you say, they've been struggling to recruit staff. And we actually spoke to um, someone from the National Day Nursery Association on a previous podcast talking about childcare costs last year. And do have a listen if uh, if you're sort of having a look around for, for information on this. Because nurseries want to provide a really good standard of care. We want them to provide a really good standard of care because the guilt associated with leaving your kids in nursery, I mean, from the moment your child is born, the guilt is there, isn't it? Um, But we also know that the government's finances are not exactly looking particularly rosy at the moment, which is probably one of the reasons why it's been staggered. Yeah, exactly. And I think this... This is the issue with terming them as free hours, because at the moment, they're not free. Parents still have to pay those top up fees like you described. So, for example, I think my nursery has fees for the different meals that you have on those days. So the government's funding doesn't cover those. It will then have an activity fee. The hours will also only cover school hours. So if your child's in nursery for more than nine till three, then you have to pay for the additional hours. So one example, and this is just one anecdotal example of one nursery, but my friend, um, her child gets the free hours for three-year-olds at the moment. The normal day rate at her nursery is £90 on a day when um, she's entitled to the free hours. She still pays £55 in a combination of those top-up fees, meal costs, extra hours. Um, and so that's where I think a lot of parents who, who've who already got children in the nursery or, or childminder system are very wary about this promise of free hours from nine months old because actually if the government's not paying nurseries a sufficient rate, nurseries are still going to have to charge these top-up fees. And so while you might get a discount on the hours, they're not going to be explicitly free. The other factor as well is that they're at the moment they're only offered for 38 weeks of the year. So to coincide with school term times, um, lots of people have their children in nursery for 52 weeks of the year. So you then don't end up with 30 free hours a week if you stretch that across the year. No confirmation so far on whether the new free hour system will mimic the current one where it just runs for term time or whether it will actually run for 52 weeks of the year. I suspect it will be the former and it will copy the current system, but it's some of the detail like that that we're still waiting for it to be confirmed. And we know that another thing that the government is looking at doing is changing the staff to child ratios for two-year-olds in childcare. So at the moment, you've got one carer for every four children, and they're talking about moving to one carer for every five children, which is something that they already do in Scotland. Now, Jeremy Hunter said, look, this is going to be optional, both for providers and for parents, but there is concern about the sort of quality of care and the fact that that number of staff just might not be enough to cope with that number of children. And I I couldn't imagine having just myself to deal with five two-year-olds. I mean, they are terrors. My my two-year-olds were absolute terrors. You're in it right at the moment. Can you imagine having, you know, four more Aprils? Oh, my goodness. But actually, 
slightly scares me the thought of that no um and interestingly I was talking to the manager of of my daughter's nursery last week about this and she was saying even on a good day where you've got no child who's ill you've got no one no child with any additional needs you've got they get quite a lot of um I live in London they have quite a lot of um children who come in where they don't speak English or English isn't their first language um she said so even on the perfect day when you don't have any of these kind of additional additional things to add in also things like potty training which takes up additional time so that even on those days it would still be very tough to have that one to five ratio the government is bringing it in because it says that this can help to create some more of that supply that we've talked about there so if you have fewer staff per um, children that means you can have more children in the nursery for the same number of staff and so that means they can offer additional places lots of you know the kind of organizations for the nursery industry have said that they don't want this they don't want this change in ratio but obviously we'll have to see how many actually implement it and how effective it will be the other side of this of course is the nursery workers themselves who have been talking about how they are not very highly paid for the level of work they do and the hours they do and this will just add further stress onto them if they're then looking after five children five two-year-olds rather than four it makes it a much more tiring and stressful job doesn't it Hats off to our childcare providers, I have to say, and hats off to our teachers as well, because my kids have been off school over the last week and uh, that has not been a great deal of fun. Um, Obviously, it it wasn't just childcare changes which came out in the budget. Um, If you are interested, do take a listen to our sister podcast, Money and Markets. We've got full budget commentary on there. Um, A new episode goes live usually every Thursday, so keep a look out for that. And one of the things in the budget which was really quite eye-opening was the warning that living standards are set to fall by 6% over the next two fiscal years. Now, that's slightly less than they were expected to fall, but it just still demonstrates how our finances are being impacted. So that's why our guest this week seems to be an inspired choice. Well done, Laura. Dubbed the nation's (laughs) financial agony aunt for her Money Clinic podcast, where she tackles real-life questions from listeners and explains the latest money trends. Claire Barrett is the consumer editor at the Financial Times, and she was brilliant when she joined us at our last Money Matters event a few weeks ago. On top of her day job, she's written a book called What They Don't Teach You About Money to help everyone get savvier with their money. She joins us to talk about her new book and why everyone should get more involved with their finances, which is obviously music to our ears. We do discuss childcare in this and the interview was recorded before the most recent budget childcare announcements. Claire, welcome. So first up, tell us what it's like being a financial agony aunt. What kind of things do people ask you? At the moment, in terms of the specifics, I'm getting lots of questions about mortgages, as you can imagine. One and a half million um, households are going to see their fixed rate mortgage expire. And it's a really big decision. It's a decision that could affect your finances for years. Some of the most popular products at the moment are 10-year fixes, which is a really 
bold move to say, well, I'm going to lock that in for, um, for, for 10 years, come hell or high water, and have to live with the, with the consequences of a financial decision for a decade. I mean, that's like a really big, That's heavy too much one. commitment for me, I think. Mm, well, <laughs> I mean, especially if you have got things like break fees um, mm. to consider and portability. So often one question will lead to a broader conversation of these are the things that you need to go and talk to your partner about or explore with a mortgage broker or you could have option a b or c as often is the case i'm also getting lots of lots of questions from people at the moment about savings now the interest rates are going up people are thinking about savings in a way that i mean if they're young adults that they've never thought before in their lives because they've grown up in an environment where interest rates have been bumping along the bottom so not great news for people with mortgages but for people who are saving up to buy a property definitely lots of interest so I would say at least three or four times a day somebody walks past my desk and says what's the top rate on savings accounts at the moment I feel like <laughs> handing out a, a small card or something <laughs> saying here, here are today's prices um, but it is a really wonderful privilege to be trusted um, by people and to have them ask me those questions rather than worry about them for years now I had one um, particular lady I won't say her name but she sent me a message on Instagram after a episode of Lorraine that I recorded about checking your state pension to see if you have any missing years and she said I'm just so scared to do this because I've got a disabled daughter and I probably should have applied for different things um, to get different benefits and I never ticked a box about the state pension and I said well look the first thing to do is just screw up your courage into a ball and just go on the gov.uk website and just check your record to see if you do have any missing years because if you were claiming benefits then automatically your national insurance record would have been topped up and lo and behold she checked it and she had a full record um, you know she was somebody approaching her 60s and she said I've been worrying about this for years years and years and now I can unworry um, about that particular problem and it just feels great to be able to release people from worrying about money I think that levels of financial anxiety with the cost of living coming out of the pandemic they've really really never been higher and any small thing that I can do to help reduce the money worry I just think that's just a, a great job to have and I'm proud to do it yeah really rewarding I imagine but what are some of the trickiest questions you get asked or some of the hardest financial dilemmas to solve well there are some questions that I can't answer for people I mean obviously what should I invest in um, to, to get a great return is, is the classic question and, you know you do have to be very careful that you're not giving people personal recommendations or dispensing financial advice with a capital A because because, you know, I'm not a qualified financial advisor. I am a journalist. But I think that when it comes to um, harder questions, with younger people in particular, it involves choice. Um, if I'm going to do that, what am I not going to do? I mean, in our everyday lives, we're seeing this in our budgets at the moment. Like, do I sacrifice my morning coffee every day in order to be able to afford to go out for a meal in a restaurant um, once a month those kinds of trade-offs but increasingly with the bigger financial decisions it is things like do I continue to pay into my pension or do I 
put everything on saving up for a property? And that is a really, really hard question to answer because we, I think we'll, we'll come on later to, to financial mistakes. But I sacrificed pension myself in favour of property um, as a young person. But the difference for me then, and this is before quantitative easing kicked in, was that, well, this is before the financial crisis, was that I didn't have to sacrifice making pension payments for very long until I got my property deposit together. Whereas for somebody nowadays, it could take them 10, 15, maybe in London, 20 years if they haven't got any parental help. Mm. So that is a really tough one. And then the other big question that I just don't have the answers for are for people who are on deficit budgets. There are millions and millions of people who... No amount of thrifting down mm. is going to solve the financial challenges they face because the benefit system um, just isn't generous enough. The minimum wage isn't high enough. And increasingly, it's single mothers, single parents. The high cost of childcare is just making work completely uneconomic. And so you've just written a new book. What sparked the idea to write that book? So the book is called What They Don't Teach You About Money. Um, and I, I joke to people that it's 100,000 pages long <laughs> because there are so many things that we're not taught about money. But those conversations that we started off talking about at the top of the show, I know I should know this, but I'm really embarrassed to ask you this, but I don't know. And I say to people, well, just like lose the shame because it's not like you've got an A-level in personal finance or even the most basic of um, preparation for the financial world in anything that we do at school, the run up to the university. I mean, you might get a parent's evening where your parents are told about how the student loan works, but it's very much directed at them and not at the actual person who's going to be carrying the debt around for the next 30, now 40 mm. years. So I do believe that there should be a lot more financial education at every stage of life, school, university, the workplace, I think is a massive opportunity for employers to, you know, really win the respect and loyalty of their staff by teaching them more about money. And in the meantime, um, whilst we don't have that, um, I've come up with this book. Now, the original title I wanted to call it was a money book for people who'd never buy a money book, because I hate money books. <laughs> Disclaimer. Um, i and I'd, I've never, ever wanted to write one because the simple reason being that I've never really wanted to read one. Um, I think there's a lot of finger wag. There's a lot of perfect experts out there who've never put a foot wrong. Mm. And there are a lot of kind of manual approaches to solve every single financial um, problem going on in your life that can just be really overwhelming for people. So I wanted to write a book that would kind of reach the parts of the market that maybe other books haven't haven't reached. And I do that in a big way through humour. Um, the people who've reviewed the book so far have all said, I wasn't expecting to laugh out loud um, at your book about money. We did have to take some of the jokes out because they're a bit, too, um, a bit too rude. And in the book, you talk about how tricky it is to find trusted sources of information on money. We've mm. obviously seen this big boom in social media content focused on money, partly as a result of the cost of living crisis. Um, but how... How do people determine what's a trustworthy source when it comes to talking about their money and finances? Now there's so much content out there. Well, I think when you're looking at people on social media who are giving you any kind of advice or ideas, you've always got to think, is this right for me? And I think the problem I have with social media is that 
on the one hand, it's fantastic for democratising um, financial advice, for getting information and facts out there, for showing people that they can change their money mindset. And there are loads of accounts, I name many um, that I really, really love um, in, in the book, that can provide sources of information, but also the confessionals, going back to the emotional roots of our, of our money behaviour. So I think that social media can give us really great ideas um, when it comes to the role money plays in our own lives. It can start really great conversations. But the downside of it is that so much else of what's on social media is giving us really irresponsible messages about finance, i.e. spend. Spend, 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 advert, 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 spend all your money, click here, get this, do that, be more like them, keep up with the Joneses, um, it's high time that you, um, you know, b bought some product that you'd never even um, thought that you would you would need. A pancake flipper was being advertised to me on Shrove <laughs> Tuesday, and it's really hard to kind of have one without the other. But also, sometimes I just have to switch off Instagram because there are so many experts on there who kind of never put a foot wrong and are really really great with all of the things that they're doing with their finances and even I feel sometimes like oh for god's sake you know I'm gonna have a bit of a splurge this this weekend I don't want to look at all of these people saying that I should never um, buy a takeaway coffee again which is something I rail against in the book I think if you know if you want to buy a takeaway coffee you're enjoying spending your money on that you're getting value and enjoyment from it then you understand um, what the impact is then you know carry on carry on doing it um, um, but you can feel quite inadequate when you look at these things. And the debt-free community, which is a really, really big and important part of, of social media, that can also be intimidating for people who are looking to deal with problem debt and pay down debt because it doesn't happen in a straight line. And neither does accumulating money and investing. Things go up, things go down. So if on a down day you can look at social media and you can find people who are saying, yeah, you know, keep going, it's, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good, fantastic. But if you're looking at social media and you're thinking, I could never do this, that's just not realistic for me, so I'm not even going to bother trying then we have a problem. And we haven't even talked about crypto yet. I mean, <laughs> I'm really, really hoping that the crypto price um, stays where it is um, because the amount of people on social media, very famous celebrities, um, who I don't know if we can name for legal reasons, but nevertheless, um, that was just so wrong on so many levels. Lots of desperate and gullible people buying into something that's allegedly an investment that was anything but. So that really is the, the dark side, that and the scams. Mm -hmm. If we could get rid of that, then I'd say, you know, 10 out of 10 to social media for fostering greater financial awareness and, and education. Wherever you play, you've got to be on your guard and, you know, take the good things from social media, but be wary. And in the book, you also talk about how maths wasn't your strong mm. point at school, which I think would surprise a lot of people. I think most people think that to enter the Financial Times building, you need some sort of masters in maths and yeah. further maths. <laughs> um, so how did you go from not really loving maths to having a career in finance? Okay, well, I mean, I do often think how on earth did a girl from Hell Hempstead who hated maths um, get onto the staff of the of the Financial Times? And 
it was a gradual process. I mean, I, I really didn't enjoy maths in school. The bits that I really didn't enjoy were things like um, loci, trigonometry, blooming Pythagoras, um, <laughs> because I just couldn't see the point of it. You know, missed. And still can't, probably. No. Um, you know, when am I ever going to have a triangle measuring emergency in my <laughs> life? You know, I haven't, I haven't had one yet. I did get really excited a few years ago where I thought that I might need to use Pythagoras to work out an area of carpet. Um, <laughs> it's a bit in my flat, but in the end, you know, you just get the carpet guys around and they do it all for you. So that used to frustrate me. And I was never the quickest. And there's always a thing in maths. It's binary. You know, it's either the right answer or the wrong answer. But there's always someone who gets their hand up first and shouts out the answer. And that was never me. And you know what? It's never going to be me. I'm not the fastest. Um, but I am at peace with that now. I know that I can work out um, the, the the maths and the sums that I need to for my own finances, you know, checking things in my column, dealing with tax, reporting company results. These are all barriers that I've had to, to cross in my professional career. I know I can do it, but I'm just not going to be able to be the one with the, the hand up first. And you know what? In real life, it doesn't matter. I'm also surrounded, blessed, you could say, with wonderful colleagues um, who are very collaborative and are always happy to chat to me. Um, and, and, and I, you know, just like people are coming up to me in the office and saying, have I understood this correctly about my pension statement or about my mortgage? I'll say, um, have I communicated this point correctly about a percentage changing, you know, the difference between percentage points um, and percentage rises, things like that. And a lot of the time, even with the money questions, people know the answer, but they just want somebody to say yes, um, have the confirmation that that is the right answer. But my first job that I started um, when I was still at school, it was my Saturday job, so I was like 15, 16, was selling guitars. And I had to get really good at doing maths in my head because you had to be able to work out what was the cheapest price. You could quote a customer for a guitar. You could have a calculator underneath the, the the counter but you had to be able to work out what the impact of VAT was and at that time it was 17 and a half percent so a bit harder than working out 20 percent um, and you had to work out um, whether it would be a good deal overall um, for, the, for the shop you know is, it, is there going to be a decent profit margin um, on this and what's the sort of um, bite point between the customer saying yes and us making a decent return. So maths in action within the workplace really turned me on to the idea of, of, of numbers. And I wanted to um, be the best salesperson and I wanted to, um, you know, sell lots of guitars at a good price and make a make a profit. So I would apply that back to the way that we teach maths in schools and say, what can we learn um, from the kind of maths and numeracy that we need in the workplace, the real life maths, the money maths, if you like, how can we inject that in to the current curriculum? There are lots of ways that that could happen. Um, you know, there's this new um, T level, um, which is uh, being debated. That's much more practical maths qualification. It's not offered in all schools. Um, there are lots of, of, of ways that I think we could start introducing this kind of maths within GCSE um, for younger children. Prime Minister, of course, wants to extend maths tuition to every um, child up to the age of 18. And lots of people were very fearful um, of that. I suspect for largely the same reasons that I was, was fearful of, of, of maths myself. But it really is worth getting scripts of numbers. It can make a huge difference to your career prospects. In the case of me, the person not good at maths who ends up at the FT, it's all an issue of confidence. It was in my head. I busted that. And now look at me go.
Um, and when people come up to you and ask you questions, whether that's kind of swinging by your desk and asking you a question or people in the street or on the various programmes you appear on, do you notice a big difference between the questions men tend to ask and the questions women mm. tend to ask? Is there a difference in the kind of money worries and queries between the genders? <clears throat> that is a very good question, Laura. Um, gosh, I have to think about this. I think for men, it's harder for them to admit that they need help. Um, and when they are helped, if I say something that unlocks knowledge for them or points them towards an article they can read or a website that they can look at, um, they are ridiculously grateful and never forget it. But I would say men, men or women, normally the kind of worries are the same. Um, and I think if you're a single person, the worries are massively amplified because you've only got one income um, coming in. I know lots of people who live on their own and have, are frankly terrified at the prospect of all of these bills going up and their social lives have just hugely shrunk because that's the only kind of fat in their in their budget, um, as it were. So that's a big difference. And then the other one is parents. Like anyone who's got young children is being crippled by the rising cost of, of childcare. That that is a huge issue for um, for parents, but it's especially um, an issue for for women. So I get lots and lots of questions from women about that. And a lot of it is down to awareness, all of the different benefits and um, credits and tax-free childcare accounts. Lots of people don't know about that. If you don't know what a tax-free childcare account is, Google it. <laughs> They've actually started advertising, I heard yesterday, on the radio to try and raise awareness of things like that, of, of different childcare support that the government's on putting on offer. So Good. hopefully that will help. Good. Um, I really hope so. And so I guess finally, how do you find it being a woman in what's quite a male-dominated sector? Finance is quite male-dominated. Journalism is quite male-dominated. You're in a bit of a crossover between the two there. How, do you, how have you found that through your career? I mean, honestly, I've never found it a problem. I think nowadays it can even be an advantage. It's controversial to, to say it, but I think that, especially when it comes to broadcast media, um, people are very conscious of the kind of representation they're giving about finance. Do they want people who are sitting watching at home to think that it's something that only fairly wealthy looking affluent men um, can can do? Um, or do they want to see younger people? Well, I can't really pretend to, to be all that young anymore, but I have been doing this for, for a long time. You know, do they want to see women? Do they want to see people of colour? Absolutely. lutely um, You know, we, we, we want to see that. And I mean, I have to say, I think in personal finance, being a woman has been an advantage um, for me because there have been lots of lots of issues that I've written about for the Financial Times over the last 12, 13 years when I've been there that hadn't really been tackled very much before. Um, I've just done a huge piece about financial abuse. You know, this is a massive taboo, but it's said that one in six women at some point in their lifetime will experience financial abuse within within a relationship. We've got the gender pay gap. Um, that's a really, really big problem still and has become a bigger one during the pandemic. The gender pensions gap, which obviously is related um, to the first problem. Um, you could say the gender finance gap. I'm seeing that increasingly used in conversations like how do we empower women to be able to find out more about those big financial questions when the whole of the industry is kind of designed by men for men is the criticism but I think it's a very valid criticism and the financial system in terms of childcare, in terms of women having to work part-time to 
make the juggle um, possible and then losing out on pensions wealth. All of these things um, are big problems that we need to know about the earlier the better so we can work out the best way to so to, to, to navigate around those and I think awareness um, of, of the problem is the first step but it's not just women that need to be aware hello you know it's it's men um, that need to be aware it's also policy makers in, increasingly and I think this is why I think childcare is going to be the hot issue um, at the general election next year because we've got to the point where if something isn't done about it soon I don't know what's going to happen uh, because it's affecting the finances of millions of families. It's not just the lowest income, it's middle income, even high income. Um, people are finding the availability and the flexibility um, of, of childcare is something that is um, increasingly a problem um, for, for them. So I am always looking for ideas um, from, from readers, from listeners, be they men or women, and I, you know, I happily write about all of them, but I feel I have like an especial duty to highlight the areas um, of women's finances in particular that could be better because I do think we have a lot of ground to make up. If we can get the number of women saving into pensions going up, if we can get the number of women who are confident enough to invest and understand that you don't have to be rich to be an investor, you can build it up slowly. It's something that you can turn on and turn off if you're having to stop for a while. And for family reasons, it's still possible for you to lead a full financial life and to and, and to do these things. But really, the first part of it is education. Thanks so much for joining us today. And I know we're all looking forward to your book. Give it a quick plug. When's it out? OK, so What They Don't Teach You About Money, Seven Habits to Unlock Financial Independence. It's coming out on the 16th of March. You can pre-order it already. And if you want some free previews um, of what it's like then do check out my instagram page i'm at claire b but i spell my name in a ridiculous way (laughs) c-l-a-e-r-b thank you very much the brilliant and extremely lovely claire barrett and yes you heard correctly we do have copies of her book to give away but you'll have to wait a few more minutes to find out how to grab one because it is confession time here we go So what's your biggest money mistake? Okay, well, I wouldn't say it was a money mistake, but I wanted to confess something that you might think was quite unusual and also might make people laugh. And my God, we need to have a bit of a laugh about our money at the moment. So it might surprise people to learn that, um, well, for one, um, I'm, I'm a crazy bird watcher. I'm absolutely nuts about bird watching. And number two, um, my obsession with bird watching has extended into collecting Emma Bridgewater birds mugs. Now, I currently have, I think, 102 Emma Bridgewater <laughs> birds mugs. So they're very beautiful. If you follow me on my Instagram page, you will see pictures of them all the time because I select a different one every day based on what kind of persona of bird I'm feeling like. So if I'm doing a lot of broadcast, I might pick parakeet um, for squawking. If I'm up late at night writing an article, then I could go for barn owl or perhaps snowy owl or perhaps little owl because indeed I have all of the owls. I've got two tawny owl ones as well. And I mention this because it's kind of like it's it's a silly thing i've been collecting them for 20 years nearly 
They cost about £20 when they come out, but they do develop a collector's value. And I have spent more than £100 um, each on some of them, the really, really rare ones that they made for the American market, featuring, Amer featuring American birds. But the reason I mention it is because I think everyone in their budget, in their life, needs to have a little piece reserved for fun, reserved for you. Now, bird mugs, I appreciate it's a bit of a <laughs> it's a bit of a specialist niche um you know it might be gaming um it might be um you know tattoos um, they're expensive i don't have any by the way um it could be it could be jewelry you know it could be it could be all manner of things but you know this is money that we've worked really hard to earn and i don't think there's anything wrong in giving yourself a little treat um from time to time again providing you get when you do spend money, you get value and enjoyment out of it when you do. And for this reason, I'm not the kind of expert that would say you've got to impose a ban on ever buying yourself coffee or avocado toast, um, if that's indeed in the shops um, anymore with all of the vegetable shortages. I think if you want to buy something for yourself, put it in your budget, then that's great. There's always something else that you can find, another area where you can save money to, to make up for it. And so for me, um, even though I have 102 Emma Bridgewater bird mugs will remain um, in my budget and whenever the Christmas catalogue um, comes out because you get two new ones every year um, I will always rush to see um, what they are and if the press office have listened to any of my suggestions about the birds that I would <laughs> wish them to feature <laughs> but not much luck so far. I love that confession. I think it's the most unique one that we've had. But I also think it taps into a really key thing, which is when we're talking about kind of budgeting and being sensible with your money, you should still allow yourself to have those little luxuries, those little things that bring you joy, even if it doesn't wholly make financial sense to buy them. I have shoes in boxes that I bought when I could wear high heels and I keep looking at them and taking them out of the box and stroking them lovingly and I never put them on my feet but then I also think if I sold them I'm not sure that I would want myself to buy secondhand shoes and I don't think other people should have to put my shoes on their feet so there <laughs> we are giving five copies of Claire's book what they don't teach you about money so if you are interested and it's a great book all you have to do is subscribe to the money matters mailing list by 11:59 p.m. on Monday the 3rd of April 2023 to do this you can visit our website ajbell.co.uk forward slash money matters or go to our Instagram page at AJBellMoneyMatters and click the link in our bio. Five lucky winners will be chosen at random and contacted via email by 5pm on Wednesday the 5th of April. For full terms and conditions, do have a look at our website. Uh, and good luck before we head off. Um, Laura, I have a question from a listener to put to you. So Bethan messages on Instagram and her question was, should I invest or should I pay off my remaining £6,000 student loan balance? Good question. It's a great question. I wish I had like a simple two word answer. It's not quite as quick as that, but I will run through all the main things. So paying off student loans has become this big social media trend led by TikTokers um, talking about making student loan overpayments. The 
big thing to bear in mind is most of those, all of those are US influencers, they're US TikTok users. And the student loan system here is very different to the US. So my first word of warning is don't follow everything on TikTok because it could be different systems in different countries. Um, so I will assume that Bethan is on a plan two loan. There are various different types of loan, but those who went to university from September 2012 onwards would be on a plan two loan. And that means that they have to repay 9% of their income for any earnings over £27,295 a year. That threshold quite often changes each financial year. But we don't think of student debt as normal debt. And that's because if your income fell below that threshold or you lost your job or you took a career break or you went part time and that means your income dropped below that level, you wouldn't have to repay the loan. So it's not like normal debt. And then after 30 years, that loan amount will get wiped out. And so that's the big factor that you've got to consider into whether you want to overpay your student loan is whether it's likely that you're going to pay off all of your student loan before it's wiped out at that 30-year period. Um, so generally, we think with all debt, it's better to pay it off sooner if you can afford to do so, because all of the time that you've got the loan, you're paying interest on that loan. And that's the same with student loan debt. And lots of people out there will see that their repayments each month actually aren't even paying off the debt that they're accumulating on their loan, let alone eating away at the capital. Um, but it depends if you are going to pay off that full loan within the 30 years as to whether it's worth making overpayments. If you won't, then making an overpayment means that you're eating away at money that you never would have paid off anyway. And so you're better off just sticking to kind of seeing it as a graduate tax, paying that 9% of your income over that threshold. Um, because otherwise, if you're not going to pay it off in full, what's the point of making an overpayment? However, if you're a higher earner or you think based on your personal circumstances, you're likely to pay it off within that period and you've got the spare money, then it could be worth making that overpayment because you're saving yourself on that interest. And also you're just clearing the loan, which mentally might be something that you really want to do because then it frees up that money each month. So that's kind of the logic. There's not a clear answer unless you look at your own kind of personal circumstances, what your earnings are, what you expect your future career and earnings to look like. The only other caveat that I would have here is what else would you do with that money if you weren't paying off your student loan? And so it's here that we come back to come those basics. So if you've got in Bethan's example, you've got £6,000, I think you said, to pay that money off. If you put that into your student loan, does that leave you with nothing? Do you, because we still need to have things like an emergency cash savings pot. We need to have money set aside for spending that we can see ourselves spending in the next five years. Um, would that money be better off going towards a house deposit if you're not on the housing ladder? So you need to think about what that money could be used for otherwise. Because once it's paid off on your student loan, you can't get that money back. That's paid off and there's no ability to kind of tap back into that account and, and get the money back. So those are the big things that you need to think about. So with a two-word answer, it would be, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> Which isn't the most helpful, but unfortunately, it's not very clear-cut. <laughs> <laughs> Look, if you do have a question, uh, which Laura or I will answer as thoroughly as that, do get in touch via any of our social media channels, or you can email us, moneymatters at ajbell.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts from, and do tell absolutely everybody about the podcast. Um, and um, if you also subscribe to our mailing list, you won't miss a thing, and you might get a copy of Claire's book. 
And that's it for this podcast. Next time, we're going to be digging into what it's like as a woman working in the financial sector, which has always been a very male-dominated industry. So we'll be talking about what's changed and what still needs to be done to persuade more women to take up a career in finance. Until then, thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.